So my name's Francesca Akhtar. I'm a PhD student here at the Institute, um, and I'm the co-organiser, along with Alan, of the seminar series. So um, it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Atul Bardwaj, who's a strategic affairs scholar and is currently a visiting research fellow in the Department of International Politics, City University of London, and also an adjunct fellow <coughs> at the Institute of Chinese Studies uh, at New Delhi. He has a PhD in history from Ambedkar University, Delhi, and holds graduate degrees from the National Defence Academy in Pune, India, and also a master's degree in war studies from King's College, London. He is a former Indian Navy officer and has been a senior fellow at the Indian Council of Social Science Research and a research fellow at the Institute of Defence Studies and Analysis in New Delhi. Additionally, he is a member of the editorial board of the Maritime Affairs Journal, uh, which is published by the Maritime Foundation of India. He also writes a regular column on strategy in the journal Economic and Political Weekly and is currently working on a book titled The Eurasian Land Connectivity and Its Impact on Maritime Order. So his talk tonight is based on his recently published book, India-America Relations, 1942-62, to Rooted in the Liberal International Order. So, Thank you so much. And good evening, everyone. And uh, it's a pleasure being here. Today I'm going to talk about this book of mine. So I'm sure you'll find it in your library. Uh, it's priced expensively, so I don't recommend that you buy it. But <laughs> you must find it in your library. Um, at the outset, I'd like to thank UCL for inviting me and giving me this opportunity to share my uh, research with you. Now, if I was to explain this book in one line, I would say that this book challenges the orthodoxy that Soviet Union was India's chief ideological mentor. Nehru's favorite projects like the five-year plans, the community development schemes, the big dams which Nehru called them as the temples of modern India, cannot be actually be described within the framework of Western dominance. Because all these actual ideas actually were imported from America. So we can't really say that it was a rejection of the Western dominance in India, which brought in these socialistic kind of projects to India. The impact of American universal ideologies in shaping the post-colonial India remains somehow on the uh, fringes of our historiography. Nationalist and even to some extent Marxist historical narratives in India imagine India as a freestanding and self-determining entity in a bipolar world, unconnected to the expansion of global capitalism under America. Actually, if you see, there is somehow no dearth of literature on Indo-American relations. But for some reason, this knowledge has remained confined to the area studies departments and has not been adequately used by historians to interpret India's contemporary history. The result is that the history of India's transition to independence is devoid of our experiences with America. 
popular histories largely attribute the British exit from India either to the intensity of our freedom struggle, the Indian freedom struggle, or the anticipated revolt by the Indian armed forces, which never happened. But there are a lot of people now these days who are saying that the British left India because the Indian armed forces were just about to revolt. I don't agree with that proposition. And this missing global context, as David Washbrook says, has limited the interpretations of South Asian modern experience by according too much importance either to bilateral relations with the Imperial Britain or hiding behind the walls of indigenous or local. The rhetoric of non-alignment and socialism is being extensively used to eclipse our engagement with the post-war hegemon, that is America. Despite huge asymmetries between America and India, India is normally shown in the narratives to be equal to America. And words like discord and estrangement are often used to symbolize this kind of an equality between India and America. I'm talking the post-colonial India. So for some strange reasons, many in India are not even aware. And as when I did my research, I spoke to a lot of historians, I spoke to a lot of other people also, are aware of the fact that India was a military, American military base during the Second World War. And there were more than 200,000 American soldiers, the GIs, with their entire intelligence paraphernalia present in Delhi, Kolkata, Karachi, Assam from year 1942 to 1946. So they established during that particular period, they established a China-Burma-India theater of operations where the basic role of the American forces was to train the Chinese soldiers at a place called Ramgarh, which is now in a state in India which is called Jharkhand and then send them back to China to fight the Japanese. So they used to fly them over the hump and bring them in by flying them over the hump because the Japanese had closed the routes to China. The Japanese had come in quite a bit inside. So they were flown from India to China and which of course was a costly affair. Then the Americans got down and built a road from India, right, extending up to China. They also, along with it, they built a pipeline. Two oil pipelines were built from Assam in India, going right up to uh, China through Myanmar in Second World War, because for oil supplies. Uh, so besides Americans, uh, if you would see that there were about 100,000 Chinese soldiers in India in 1944. And add to this course of the British military personnel during the war. So the impact of such large number of young soldiers on food supplies in India and also on Bengal famine is something which is begging to be researched. Why I say this? is because a lot of people uh, you know, simply blame Churchill for the Bengal famine for diverting the food supplies out of India. But there was a huge consumption of food supplies which was happening within India 
and which could have impacted, I have not really researched on this particular aspect, but which also could have had an impact on the Bengal famine at that time, because there were so many young soldiers present. And there are some narratives which tell us that the amount of food consumption which the American GIs used to do, the British soldiers had less food and the American soldiers used to eat more. They used to eat 12 eggs at a time. And uh, it, it really it put a lot of pressure on the food supplies in India. And uh, so Amer uh, the other aspect was when you had these number of American soldiers present in India, so they, they were very closely monitoring the transfer of power process in India. Between Amer uh, America and Britain had differences in the question of colonialism, but their intelligence networks collaborated to ensure that independent India remained wedded to the political, uh, Western political and economic order. So Roosevelt, who could ill afford to antagonize Churchill, actually avoided overt engagement with the Indian freedom struggle. However, there was a very vibrant American civil society that was actively pitching for India's freedom. So in response like to the first Crips mission in 1942, 57 Americans signed an appeal urging Roosevelt and Chiang Kai-shek both, who was a Chinese leader at that time uh, during the war, to reopen negotiations in India. The full page petition appeared in New York Times of 28 September 1942. The American representative in India at that time was William Phillips. And he had been sent specially by the US president. He arrived in India in some time in the beginning of 1943. So he was intricately involved in ensuring that Mahatma Gandhi's 20-day one-day fast to capacity, which he had launched on 10th February 1943, ended without causing much political upheaval in India. He was so concerned about Gandhi's possible death in prison due to mishandling of situation by the British that he issued a statement which said that the American forces would not participate in suppressing any internal revolt in India. However, he also mentioned that in case of an attack by Axis powers, America would completely would be completely involved in defending India alongside the British. Phillips, and these are from the American records, his telegrams to the State Department, where Phillips was basically guided by the need to reassure the Indians that America was their friend and also to keep, quote unquote, the white prestige intact in India. So one of the roles was that, uh, you know, the, the British had invited the Americans to India largely because there was an onslaught of uh, the Japanese onslaught. The Japanese were knocking at their Indian doors and their forces were present. And the second, of course, aspect was the growing Indian nationalism. So basically, to balance these out, the, uh, the British had got the American forces. And the in American involvement in Indian politics also began during the particular war. For example, I will give you an example. Uh, Pandit uh, Jawaharlal Nehru's sister uh, was Vijay Lakshmi Pandit. 
and uh, you know her husband died in prison in 1944 the british uh, authorities basically took away her passport and said that she would not be allowed to go out so then what she does is then there is an uh, uh, american consulate general's wife who happens to be a chinese she uh, she takes him to an american party in kolkata where there's american officers are partying hard and they used to party hard because they were not really fighting war in india so they were really part in calcutta and other places they were really having fun time and this has been written by the british generals so there was a tussle between uh, the british uh, officials present in india and the american guys present there so he mentions that they used to have these wild parties and uh, so Vijay Lakshmi Pandit Nehru's sister is taken to one of these parties after her husband's death, and from there America says that okay, we'll fly you to. Uh, they, they they approve flying her to America in a military plane, and she goes there, and because she is going there because her two daughters are studying at Wellesley College in America, and uh, their their sponsors their their funding support is coming from Madam Chiang Kai Shek. because that time if you imagine america china and uh, all these countries were very closely fighting together during the second world war so and when pandit goes to america she receives a thunderous uh, she meets mrs roosevelt in 1944 and uh, she is also meeting all the, the head of all the top governors of the united states have a party with her or a dinner uh, engagement with her and so she is treated in a very uh, in a manner as if american intelligence is expecting her to be the prime minister or were they were convinced that probably nehru would be the india's prime minister first so that's the kind of a reception she receives in 1944 now all this i am telling you is because uh, it becomes important to understand that the transfer of power process which happened in 1940s between the british authorities and the indian nationalists was not actually a bilateral affair because there was a third party a powerful military power and which was a rising power physically present in india during that period and for some reason historians have overlooked this particular aspect of the american presence in india and this of course is you know i say that this is a gaping hole in our historiography and this process not only started during the second world war but it started little earlier after the great depression the three american ideas which the indian nationalists imbibed in after the great depression and in early 40s were uh, one was the new deal the other was the concepts of development related to the tennessee valley authority and the third was the civil liberties so these three ideas i'm saying came to india from america the new deal of course was a mixed economy model which the roosevelt had introduced and which india the post colonial india followed very diligently and the tva was a blueprint for big dams that was copied and the american experts came in india to develop those big dams in india which nehru you know sold them as the quote unquote the mod, uh, the temples of modern india and the third idea which came from the charter of american civil liberties union aclu which was used 
sort of as an antidote to the class struggle which was being propagated by some Marxists in India in mid-30s and early 40s. So this kind of a pre-war package, I call this as pre-war package from America, gave India actually its post-colonial ideology and laid the foundations of liberalism in India, which today we find being challenged. Of course, there is a lot of contributions of the British Fabians also in this, uh, in establishing the liberal traditions in India. But particularly after uh, the Great Depression, when the British decline had already set in, the Americans jumped in at that time with these ideas. And the Indian political class was ready to accept them because they rejected the idea of Stalin Soviet Union. They rejected the idea, the other ideas present was uh, Soviet idea and the third was the Hitler's idea. So both these were rejected and a lot of Indians actually then, Nehru. so Nehru, I would, rather than calling him a socialist, I say that he was largely a new dealer. In 1941, uh, a Bolshevik-Leninist party was formed in India and Ceylon by the American Workers' Party which later, of course, got merged into the Congress Socialist Party in 1948. Uh, this was led by an Indian socialist leader called Jay Prakash Narayan, and uh, who was in touch with, uh, you know, American uh, communists during uh, his stay in America in the 1920s. And one of his mentors was Jay Lovestone, uh, who was an anti-Stalinist communist in the 1930s. And he later joined the American intelligence establishment uh, in managing the trade union movements and socialist groupings across the globe. So Jay Prakash Narayan was mentored by this particular person. The Indo-US military trials um, were a legacy of the Third World uh, of, the, of the Second World War. On 1st July 1947, the interim government headed by Nehru signed an agreement regarding the U.S. military aircraft's flights across India and facilities to be accorded to them. United States military transport services MAPS planes were permitted night halt facilities in India at New Delhi, Calcutta and many other cities in India. In 1949, the Indian government renewed the agreement. This is after independence. Permitted the U.S. military planes to fly across India and also agreed to the stationing of the American maintenance crew for aircraft repair and servicing in India. So India provided transit facilities to the US aircraft when the Korean conflict was at its peak. The US planes were not only engaged in military activities, but you know some CIA planes I've got from the archives were also used uh, in Tibet and elsewhere in Asia during that particular time. In fact, what is surprising to me from the archives, I found that the U.S. Embassy had two military planes, Dakotas, permanently positioned at Delhi Airport, which the naval and air attaches could fly at will. In 1962, the Embassy added another aircraft, and this arrangement probably continued till 1971. So I'm saying this basically and U.S. was the only uh, embassy in India which had its own military planes present in India 
during that particular phase, in the post-colonial phase. Uh, no other country had. So that is the kind of engagement that India had with the United States. On Indo-American, uh, then there was an Indo-American military engagement in 1951. India signed a reimbursable military aid agreement with the US and received, until the beginning of 57, military goods and services worth 38 million from the United States. So there was a very active, uh, you know, engagement with the United States, which somehow does not get covered uh, in our narratives. So, because I, and the narratives are actually, uh, you know, usurped by the Soviet Union to such an extent that people believe that Nehru was, uh, you know, mentored by Soviet Union. Nehru believed in Soviet Union, and Nehru was actually, you know, guided by the communist spirits. So, un because until '57, India had not turned to Soviet Union for any supplies. So the special privileges which acquired by American military in the Indian maritime and airspace during World War, so they continued to be applicable in independent India till about 71. That close we were to the Americans. So in Nehru era, the American philanthropic foundations enjoyed unbridled freedom of action. When I'm talking of philanthropic foundations, I'm saying of Rockefeller Foundation and Ford Foundation. The Ford Foundation was the first to establish, it's the first overseas office of the Ford Foundation was established in India in 1952. And it directly engaged with the Indian government in community development programs, in urban planning, in, you know, in education sector, in population control sector. So they were very intricately involved with the uh, with Indians uh, from early 50s onwards. So basically the foundations were involved with India because their aim was to build also, the, this is my new project so I am just mentioning a line over here, that their aim was, one of the aim was to build an epistemic community in India that helped the ideological fortification of India against the ingress of communism from China. While the American foundations were quick to establish themselves in India, the American establishment took some time, post-colonial India, absolutely. So there were differences in the books you will read that there were a lot of differences on wheat imports uh, between India and America and some other issues which had cropped up. But the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation were very active in India and directly participating in the nation building process in India. So till the about Suez crisis in 1956, by and large the British involvement in Indian affairs was, <coughs> was still there. You know, if you see the Indian Air Chief and the Indian Naval Chief uh, continued to be British till about 1957-58. So British remained the chief mentor, but uh, India Nehru's performance, like at Bandung conference, uh, which was of the Afro-Asian conference, which was held in 1954, made Churchill say that Asia is with us. So basically, the foreign policy was being guided largely. You know, the Commonwealth foreign policy India was following in that particular time, and he said that Asia is with us, and appreciating Nehru's role in ensuring that Asia remained with the West and was not usurped by the communist ideology. 
Churchill said that Nehru is the light of Asia, and yes, and a greater in light than even Buddha. So that's what Churchill, you know, because Nehru, of course, had been able to gather all the Afro-Asian newly independent states together, and he was about, you know, um, so he saw this as a victory. Churchill saw this as a victory that these people, Afro-Asian states, are not going away towards the, the Soviet bloc, basically. And they are remaining largely as non-communist within the liberal bloc, within the free uh, countries bloc. But however, after the Suez crisis, America took full charge of the situation in India. And uh, so now let's, uh, so this is, the, this is the first part of my book, which I by and large covered in, up till now. That how the Americans came, the kind of ideas which came in from America to India, and you know, their military presence in India, their impact on a transfer of process, a power process in India, and the early establishment of American philanthropic foundations in India. Uh, you know, and who were, who were very intricately involved in India's nation building process. The second part of my book then starts dealing with the foreign policy issues, uh, which begin to happen. So there's one thing which uh, uh, people ask in India even till today, why was Nehru so keen to recognize the Communist Party's regime in China? Nehru rec gave recognition to China in 1950. The thing is that Nehru was not actually alone uh, in recognizing China in 1950. He was not the only member of the free world who was soft towards China. Because along with Nehru, Britain and other members of the Commonwealth also recognized China in the same period. The only, uh, you know, uh, uh, thing which Nehru was granted was that if uh, if Britain recognized China on some sixth of some month, Nehru said, "No, I want to look a little independent, so let me do it on the first of that month." So that is the only thing difference. Uh, so because he said, "I want to look a little more independent. I don't want to look a part of the Commonwealth." So that was what he was granted uh, during that particular period. But besides that, by and large, that it was a commonwealth policy to recognize China. And it is very important to realize when we are studying the Cold War histories, that at no stage the West had actually completely abandoned China. Their basic aim from the very beginning was how to get China into the free world bloc and wean it away from the Soviet bloc. Therefore, that they always kept the door ajar for China. When US was very really hard on China, there was always Britain available to cuddle China. And I'm talking of 50s. In fact, in 58, when India's relations with China began to deteriorate, Britain's total exports to China surged from 12 million pounds in 1957 to 27 million pounds in 1958. And imports from China to Britain jumped to about 19 million dollars in 15 uh, pounds in 15, uh, 1958. By 61, Britain, as well as most of the European countries, was urging US to seat communist China in United Nations because without China, the disarmament negotiations were incomplete. 
So they, they, you know, we, we start working with a lot of myths that, um, that people say that you know, USA was against China, but there are a lot of undercurrents in international politics, which as researchers, I think that we must try to grab those undercurrents, or we must try to negotiate them, or we must try to understand them, because without that, our histories really remain incomplete. Nehru would have probably loved to follow the British line on China. You know, uh, he was earlier soft on China. He wanted a, a, to avoid war with China uh, because he felt that India was economically too weak to get involved in a war with China. But post Suez crisis, uh, by mid-50s, America had sidelined Britain as a chief foreign policy advisor of India. India that was standing in front because India by 57 was facing a severe foreign exchange crisis. Its second five-year plan was in jeopardy. What India then was forced to go to the World Bank. So once India was in the World Bank, then of course the, you know, the conditionalities involved with getting the, no, uh, the loans also came in. And that's that the, the process started after the Suez crisis. And during the Suez crisis, Nehru opposed the Britain, uh, Britain and France. And at that time, actually, America was also opposed to Britain and France. So he had not taken a line which was very antithetical to the American line. Another reason for which Nehru is vilified in India even till today is that John Foster Dulles offered India a permanent seat in the United Nations Security Council in 1950. And a lot of people say Nehru refused it simply because he was too idealistic. Now it is to be understood that Dulles' offer was actually half-hearted. He made an offer basically to signal to China asking it to fall in line rather than to appease India or to grant India a seat in the UN Security Council. To ensure that his signal reached Mao, Dulles actually engaged some journalists and you know, covered this offer uh, in a big way in the media so that the signal reaches to Mao. Nehru was of course intelligent and so he understood the real political reason behind the lucrative offer uh, that Dulles had made and so he automatically refused the offer. So there was nothing much in that offer as, uh, uh, for Nehru to accept. The other reason was that during the Korean War, India was deeply engaged in promoting the idea of United Nations. And the United Nations was one of the pillars of the liberal international order. Even before Soviet Union had fully joined it, Nehru had given full support to United Nations. And that's why I say that India was not really non-aligned, but really a part of the liberal international order. So I'm trying to understand India's foreign policy in terms of its engagement with the liberal international order, rather than by simply saying that it was non-aligned. And so at that stage, neither and since it was one of the you know, United Nations were one of the biggest pillars of uh, the liberal international order, therefore neither Nehru and nor the Americans were uh, interested in disturbing it. Another reason was that Nehru was performing at that particular stage in the Korean crisis, I'm saying, 
an important role as a mediator and as interlocutor between US and China. During the Korean War, India was deeply engaged in promoting the idea uh, 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 about you know, peace and other things, but basically Nehru was engaged with China in negotiating on behalf of America and Britain to some extent. The Indians that played a very crucial role in the international bodies during the Korean conflict were, there was one uh, bureaucrat, KPS Menon, he was the chair of the United Nations Temporary Commission on Korea. Then you had one Dr. Anup Singh, who was India's representative at the commission. And he was one of the important members of India League of America that had spearheaded the campaign for India's freedom in America in 1930s and 1940s. So he used to stay in America. And after independence, uh, India's independence, he was, in, uh, he was brought into the India's Ministry of External Affairs. And from there, he represented India at the United Nations during the Korean crisis. Another Indian important, I'm saying this about the Korean crisis because there are a lot of misgivings again on this issue that India was, you know, at loggerheads with the, U uh, with the U.S. during the Korean crisis. So, I, uh, so another person who played very important role, an Indian who played very important role uh, during the Korean crisis in the international fora was B.N. Rao. He was an Indian representative uh, to the United Nations and was the chair of the United Nations Security Council. When, it, when, the, when this whole idea about uh, you know, North Korea came up, that North Korea was the aggressor. And uh, so, the, so in, the key Indians were present there in the United Nations during the Korean crisis. And they were not really you know, working against America. Interestingly, uh, you know, there was another connection which comes up. Uh, B.N. Rao's niece, uh, her name was Santa Rama Rao. And she was married to Fabian Bowers. Uh, who was the ADC to General MacArthur. So I'm talking about these connections. And her father at that time when she got married to this uh, ADC was uh, the India's ambassador to Tokyo in 1948. And from there he moved on to India's ambassador in the United States. And he comes back in the 50s to India and takes over as the governor of the Reserve Bank of India. So, so important person he was. And his daughter, of course, was married to General MacArthur's ADC. So America had forged these connections. Later, she got, of course, divorced in <laughs> years. And then she was married to another American naval officer. Mm -hmm. But she was one of the, uh, interestingly, when I found in the archive, she was one of the first India's diplomatic daughter to uh, study in Melsley College and in USA in 1944. And she worked, of course, for the uh, OSS, the, uh, the predecessor to CIA, during those years uh, uh, in America when she was at Wellesley College. So I am basically saying that America had forged these connections with India, the Indian elite, at a time when Soviet Union was still struggling to figure out, you know, the relevance of India's independence itself. And this is the time when Stalin and Soviet Union was calling Nehru the running dog of imperialism. And America had well established itself in India during that particular phase. 
and India was and that's one of the reasons why India continues to be very important to America even till today because the Indian elite is sort of wedded to the liberal international order. So once communists emerged victorious in mainland China, the American media started in 1949, the American media started seeing Nehru as actually the spokesperson of the troubled continent because uh, the, the China lobby in America, uh, they said that uh, you know we've lost China and uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek is gone, so who will look after Asia? So they found that Nehru was the next best leader who could look after uh, Asia. Uh, so a Michigan paper during 1949, Nehru made a maiden visit to America in 1949 and a Michigan paper at that time said having quote unquote having written of China as a complete loss, the State Department apparently has decided that India offers the best bet for curbing, uh, curbing communism in Far East. So, you know, so these huge asymmetries were there between America and India, but yet we always say that America, India was equal to America and, you know, it was a big nation and this and that. But actually, uh, uh, in 53, like India exported a small quantity of thorium nitrate to China. And the US protested against uh, India's, uh, you know, uh, exports. And it reminded India of a battle act of uh, a battle act or a mutual defense assistance control uh, control act of 1951 that prohibited such exports by allies to communist bloc countries. So India was so close that America considered that India should not be dealing with the communist countries at all in terms of exports and import. A similar pressure was applied by the U.S. when India tried to resume air services with China. So in 55, America delayed clearance of three super constellation aircraft purchased for Air India, which were to be delivered sometime in 55. So India's ambassador Washington uh, at that time, uh, GL Mehta, pointed out the main reason behind the non-supply of aircraft was Indian in government's intention to start air services to Beijing. So there was this kind of a pressure even coming in there, like now we have these issues of 5G, you know, even India is facing this issue as Britain is facing whether we should have 5G or not 5G, whether we should get 5G from China or not. So those issues were also existing in the 50s. Despite mutual attraction, both India and America sort of avoided a kind of a display, overt display of ornament. And that's, that, that was one of the most interesting things in, uh, when I was looking at this relationship, that why both of them have actually avoided this. Now, so then I tried to analyze and I said, in the initial engagement with India, America was guided by its experience of loss of China. The American establishment was very careful not to weaken the nationalist forces in India by appearing to be too close to Nehru and making him resemble almost like Chiang Kai-shek, whom the Chinese communist had identified as an American stooge. So because the Chinese communist party thought, uh, you know, used this political rhetoric that Chiang Kai-shek was, he was not nationalist, he was actually working for America 
And that's why, and that is one of the reasons that the China lobby in America said that we have lost China because of this. We should not have made him to be, uh, you know, a poodle, American poodle at that stage, or look like an American poodle at that stage. So one of the important elements of the U.S. foreign policies in the 40s, if you see, was the Friendship, Commerce, and Navigation Treaty. You know, this was one of the important treaties which America was going around in the 1940s trying to sign bilateral treaty with all the countries. Basically, it was a treaty to expand the American capital at that time and also to develop new relationship as colonialism was sort of coming to an end. So in 1943, uh, um, America signed this FCN treaty uh, with China, which got implemented in 1946. But its political repercussions were quite huge for Chiang Kai-shek. And as I said, that the Chinese used this political rhetoric and this, this helped Mao surge ahead of the Nationalist Party, which eventually resulted in what the Americans called as the loss of China. Because China was so close to America, and suddenly in 49, they found, they discovered that the beacon of hope in Asia had gone away from them. Suddenly, it had turned um, communist. Not suddenly, of course, there were signs before, but it had become like that. So this was a huge loss. And there was uh, this, uh, in America, this uh, China lobby in India, which was called, which was basically supporting Chiang Kai-shek. It consisted of Henry Luce. Henry Luce was the publisher of Time uh, and the Fortune magazine and the Life magazine. And he headed this uh, lobby in America. Coincidentally, uh, the India League of America, which was fought for India's freedom in America, was headed by uh, Henry Luce's wife uh, in uh, America. And uh, so both were Henry Luce was active in China as well as in India also, but she was the guiding light behind the India League of America. So this experience of China, losing China, made Americans very cautious when it came to uh, India. So when it came to particularly signing FCN treaty with India, the Friendship, Navigation and Commerce Treaty with India. Because the, uh, the Indo-American negotiations went on for 10 years after India's independence on this particular treaty. Because America did not want India to look, uh, you know, give any fodder to the Indian communists to target Nehru. Nehru's nationalism for that matter. So that's why you know, they, they didn't appear to be too close to India during that particular phase. In the 50s, the Americans became, uh, the other important angle which comes into the Indian for in the 50s, the Americans became proactive in Tibet and, uh, as London took a backseat in early 50s. Uh, London took a backseat because it wanted to protect its stakes in Hong Kong and other territories in China. So, you know, it did, want, it did not want to upset China uh, to that extent. Nehru, in the initial years, followed the British policy, the Commonwealth policy, of non-confrontation with Mao. Therefore, when the Chinese Communists took control of Tibet in 50, the dominant sections of the Indian political class, largely the right-wing, it included the right-wing liberals as well as conservatives, uh, saw it as an opportunity to discredit Nehru on China issue, on Tibet issue, on his stance on invasion, Chinese invasion of Tibet and Nehru not taking a very firm stance against. 
So CIA considered this a very positive development in the assessment of India in 1950. It expressed happiness that the Chinese communist invasion of Tibet aroused considerable anger within the Indian government and it placed considerable pressure on Nehru to abandon his moral support for communist China. And this sort of marked the origin of Tibet lobby in India in the early 50s. In 52, the Society of Defense for Freedom in Asia came into being. The organization went on to create a Tibet committee to fight for the Tibetan cause. The committee was headed by right-wing political leaders and this powerful pro-American lobby consisting of members from all major parties, barring of course the Communist Party of India, used Tibet card to build a sort of for othering China and uh, pushed in the later 50s, in the, in the late 50s, it pushed Indian authorities on an escalatory war path with China. The, lo lo the lobby closely collaborated with their counterparts in America. Uh, as I said, Jayaprakash Narayan, a socialist leader in India, uh, was a, a tall anti-communist socialist leader in India, was associated with the New York-based Committee of One Million against the admission of China to United Nations. He presided over an Afro-Asian convention, it was, you know, track 1.5 kind of an effort uh, on Tibet, which was held in Calcutta in, uh, sometimes in May 1959. After the convention, the Afro-Asian committee went to all the other countries, you know, apprising them of the kind of atrocities which have been committed in Tibet. And uh, so besides mobilizing the world opinion, the, uh, also arranged, uh, the committee also arranged for an appointment of an international commission of neutral countries to report on the violations of human rights, including the destruction of monasteries in Tibet. So what I'm trying to say is that here was Jayaprakash Narayan, an anti-communist socialist leader in India, who became the point man for the Americans to control the, the Tibet lobby in India and to support the uh, this whole grouping which was actually uh, which, was, which was urging Nehru to, to be more aggressive towards China, particularly on Tibet issue. So he was also engaged in, uh, this leader was also engaged in helping Dalai Lama when he came to India and uh, in helping the refugees, he set up, helped them set up, you know, one iron steel mill company in India. He also helped them set up paper mills in India. So Tibetans had this kind of, uh, you know, uh, organizations running for them. Uh, basically, they also needed money for themselves to, to support themselves in India. And this, uh, these industries were being, providing them that kind of help. So the arrival of Dalai Lama to India in April 59 marked the open involvement. Nehru had been calling himself non-aligned, non-aligned, all this while. But the moment Dalai Lama came to India, and it's India's involvement in, in, in uh, Tibetan affairs. This single move completely disturbed the India-China relations at that time, which was, which was moving on an even keel, uh, you know, uh, till the Bandung conference. And India was seen to be in complete alignment with uh, America from then on. And uh, however, in, within India, the mood was very upbeat because now India Nehru was taking a stance against China. And added to this was a guilt for being late in helping the Tibetan cause. So there are a lot of people guilty, even now, that we don't 
will not help Tibetans adequately. India should have been more aggressive in helping the Tibetan cause. After the Dalai Lama's arrival in India in 59, the next big moment came uh, when President Eisenhower visited India in 1959. In fact, 1959 was a watershed year in India-America relations. India started receiving about $1 billion of aid, not only from America, but America also uh, gathered the other Western countries uh, to help India tide over its financial problems. So when President uh, Eisenhower was in Delhi, India gave him a thunderous welcome. And the American media obviously was uh, happy with it and they said, uh, one of the media reported that neutralist, standoffish India has overnight become warmly pro-Western, pro-US in its new and angry concern over trans-Himalayan threat of the Chinese. And some American newspapers reported that Nehru seemed willing and ready for action against China. And that President Eisenhower's goodwill visit to India was likely to become more a war strategy session than a social call. So the preparations for the war began much earlier. The newspapers added that it is too soon to expect India to give up her cherished neutrality. But Nehru's private memorandum to his top envoys in foreign capitals shows that he has finally come around to the grim belief that armed action may be required to force the Chinese from the position they now occupy on territory India regards as a home, since the boundary issue was had developed uh, between India and China by 1959. The basic argument that I make is that about the Sino-Indian War, you know, again, the preparations, the, the talk about the war had become much earlier than 1962. So, 59 was the year when actually the whole talk about confrontation with China picked up momentum. In early 60s, the activity, I've dug out from my archives some material, the activity in the Indian military wing of uh, the Indian embassy in Washington increased considerably in 1960 and 61. The number of indents which the, uh, the army and the air force attaches were receiving suddenly jumped up. So that is some kind of an indication you know, uh, that there was an activity which was in progress even in 60-61. But somehow the narrative suggests that uh, both Nehru and uh, his defense minister Krishna Menon were not really interested in preparing India against China. So they were not investing in India's military hardware at that stage. But these archival records show a very different story in that sense. That there was a movement it's not that India was not really, uh, you know, preparing itself. Uh, my book actually discusses the politics of 62 war. It argues that 62 war helped Americans to deepen the, si the Sino-Indian uh, war of 1962, actually helped America to deepen the Sino-Soviet divide. And India became a partner in that kind of an American strategy. There is no doubt that Nehru genuinely wished to be on a line but how far he was successful in achieving it is a question. The fact is that India lost its non-alignment touch the moment it allowed US intelligence and military activities in Tibet to be carried out from its soil in mid-50s. 
Another aspect of Cold War politics I discussed is that India started inching closer to Soviet Union, if you see. Now, this is a very interesting aspect of the Cold War. India starts, to, it starts inching towards Soviet Union in late 50s. And this was a time when the Indo-American relations were at their peak. Late 50s, when Eisenhower is coming to India and other issues. After Stalin's death, Cold War had actually begun to thaw, if you actually see. Khrushchev began visiting Western capitals. He had started the de-Stalinization process. If Khrushchev visited India in 55, he also went to Britain in early 56. He signed agreements with Norway, with Belgium, with France. And uh, in 58, the two Cold War rivals signed bilateral cooperation treaty, America and the Soviet Union. So there was a solid thaw in, uh, in Cold War politics in, in, from mid-50s onwards, when after Stalin's death. And this, this aspect is also in our assessments of the Cold War, we tend to miss out this particular aspect of the Khrushchev period in, in, from mid-50s to early 60s, till about, say, Cuban crisis. And I argue in this book that Nehru is inching towards Soviet Union at a time when he is very close to America also, because it was not just Nehru wanted it to do it. Americans were also nudging him towards the Soviet Union. Because it, it was a larger part of the strategy towards how to deal with the non-communist neutral countries, non-aligned countries. So the US reactions to Soviet aid to the free world non-communist countries is contained in a 1958 policy paper of the US State Department. According to the paper, the Soviet aid to non-communist countries was to be encouraged. The US State Department wants to encourage this Soviet Union's involvement with non-communist neutral non-aligned countries like India, Egypt, Ghana and other countries. And also to publicize this, basically the aim was to signal to the Chinese, to send a signal to the Chinese that the Soviet aid was being spent on quoting the non-communist countries rather than helping to strengthen the socialist bloc. So basically the whole grand strategy was how to divide China and uh, Soviet Union. So this of course was a part of American grand strategy. Basically they were trying to instigate Chinese against the Soviets to increase the chances of Sino-Soviet split. Now this policy was also calculated, so part of the policy was to apply pressure on China. So that the, apply so much of pressure that the, that the alliance, uh, you know, uh, comes to a breaking point. Both Taiwan and Tibet were identified as the painful points in China. And if adequately pressed, they thought, Americans thought, could lead China to to know, we have to fall out of the Soviet alliance. So in India, uh, in 59, Soviet President Khrushchev landed on American soil actually, to ease the Cold War tensions. The Chinese are obviously unhappy with this entire development. And uh, the Soviet moves actually, the Chinese thought had actually accelerated the prospects of a Sino-Soviet split. The Sino-Soviet split, uh, you know, increased when Moscow took a neutral stance. So this India-China war comes in between. 
So Moscow, when India-China hostilities are developing, when India-China, uh, you know, uh, war talk is developing, Moscow takes a very kind of a neutral stance in this. And Chinese are very upset with Moscow. Why you are taking a neutral stance? You should be standing just next to us. There is no question that you could be saying that Indians are, uh, you know, you are taking a very, uh, solve the matter peacefully, uh, you know, like that diplomatic language. So the Chinese are not happy with the Soviet diplomatic language during the 1962 war. Uh, you know, Tito, uh, so when Yugoslavian President Tito advised Soviet Union to adopt the pacifying role in India-China dispute, the People's Daily of China blamed the Tito clique for exposing themselves as a group of renegades betraying socialism, hating socialist China, and sowing dissensions among the socialist countries. So when Tito, Tito also visited India in 1959. So that, that's why I'm saying it's very crucial here. And people day, uh, people's daily again accused him of trying to peddle wares that suit the needs, suit the needs of imperialism. So, you know, this, this kind of uh, Tito, Titoism, uh, uh, even when the, the, the moment Mao becomes, uh, uh, Mao comes to power in China, uh, a lot of people identify him as the next, uh, as, as a Chinese Tito. Uh, Americans and Europeans expect that, you know, he is going to break away from Soviet Union at some stage or the other. And he's not going to stay with the Soviet Union for too long. So that's eventually what happens. And uh, I would, <laughs> because it's, it's taken time. So I would, basically the war, uh, happened because of this particular strategy, the long-term strategy in which the Indian political class also had their own, uh, you know, how to gain from that war, they also thought about it. But by and large, the Indian foreign policy started drifting from after the Suez crisis to get closer to America and to become a part of the larger American strategy of causing the Sino-Soviet split. That's all. Thank you. Okay, thank you.